I think we're going to get started, so come on back and grab a seat. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 27. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Do you remember uh, in the 80s, uh, they used to have those really tiny shorts uh, in the 80s? Well, well, I grew up in the 80s, and, and I had a pair of yellow shorts. Uh, and it, and uh, it said in green letters, WMC, Western Maryland College. I'm from Maryland. And it's not even called Western Maryland College anymore. But, but I had these shorts when I was in middle school, and, and they were small. And, and I thought, well, I'll take them with me. And I, I had them for years. And I thought, you know, sometime I'm going to use these for a practical joke. So it was 1997, and it was my first year in campus ministry. And one night I got a phone call from little Dan Jackson there at the University of Missouri. And he said, hey, I know we're meeting over at the rec center to play basketball. I'm coming from class. I don't have any shorts. Can you bring me a pair? I said, sure, Dan. And so that night, if you know, Dan loves to play basketball. And so that night, and and, in the late 90s, that's when everybody was wearing the shorts. You know, smaller shorts are coming back in vogue now, but in the late 90s, it had to be by your knees or it was not cool at all. And so there Dan was with these little shorts about this long. Do I play and wear these or do I not? Of course he played. Christy and I got to see Dan and Tricia yesterday at the lake house and we were laughing at some of those Stories. Uh, for some of you who don't know me, my name is Chad. I've been here once before and I've spoken at a youth conference. Uh, I'm, I'm a campus minister with a ministry called RUF at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And I was Dan's campus minister at the University of Missouri my first year. He was actually my first student that I ever met. Uh, we're, we're having some problems. One, one of the things we figured out is our, Dan and I have different ear sizes. So this keeps on falling off. We'll see how it lasts. Hopefully it'll, it'll go well. Well, we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 24. And we're going to be thinking about the Bible. And really, what is, what is the central message of the Bible? What's at the heart of the Bible? But, but not only that, uh, we also want to think about some of the hard questions. Uh, why, the, why for some people the Bible isn't worth listening to or it's not trustworthy. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's now after Jesus has resu- he's, he's been killed on the cross and he's resurrected. It's Sunday morning. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for a chance to think about your word. Lord, is it trustworthy? Are there reasons that we can trust it? Lord, really, what is the heart, the center of the Bible? Lord, pray that you would help us to think through these things, to hear your word. Uh, Lord, to uh, come to understand Jesus a little bit better. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. When, when you come to a, a Christian worship service or a Christian church, there are some things that are already presupposed or already assumed. Uh, and some of those things, or one of those things, is that the Bible is the one and the unique way that God has revealed Himself, that He has spoken to us. And so, so Christians, historically, have believed that what the Bible says is true. It's how we know truth. And so the Bible, the Bible answers the big questions of life. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where are we going? Uh, what are we to live for now? Those essential questions about purpose in life. And the Bible, it seems, can be a lot like an orange-flavored Tootsie Pop. An orange-flavored Tootsie Pop. If you've ever had an orange-flavored Tootsie Pop, you know at the center of the Tootsie Pop is the Tootsie Roll, the, the delicious chocolatey center that, that you can't wait to get to. And there are all kinds of flavors of, of Tootsie Pops. And if you've ever had an orange-flavored one, you know that it's the nastiest of all the lollipops. It's gross. And I don't know why they started with... It's one of the original flavors. I don't know if you know this, but it was one of the original flavors, orange. But, but the Bible is sometimes like an orange-flavored Tootsie Pop. You have to endure the, the hard orange candy parts you can finally get to the good part. And sometimes you endure it, and sometimes you say, it's just not worth getting to the Tootsie Roll part to eat the orange candy. And the Bible is a little bit like that. There are questions about the Bible, about its validity, about its trustworthiness, that sometimes it seems you have to swallow to get to the good part. Questions may be like, how do we know that what we have in the Bible actually happened? Questions like, isn't the game or isn't the Bible like a game of telephone? Uh, the Bible has been translated so many times over so many years that what we have now, how do we know that that's what happened all the way back then? Uh, it seems like there are possibly two different accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Does the Bible really approve of slavery? Uh, does the Bible discriminate against women? Uh, why is the Bible seemingly a bunch of rules? And we could go on. There, there could be other questions that we might ask. And, and these questions sidetrack us. And they taste a little bit like that orange part of the, or the Tootsie Roll. And, you, and some people never get to see the sweet part or, or understand the sweet part of Scripture because they can't get past 
some of these good and difficult questions. Now, some of you here, these may be your questions. And and these questions may bother you. And you may be a Christian and you've always had these questions in the back of your mind. Some of you, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you say, these are the questions and other ones that, that give me a hard time for really grasping Christianity. Because you know that Christians believe the Bible is foundational. It's really important. And for some of you, your relatives, your neighbors, your co-workers, these are their questions. And the reason why they don't want to come to Jacob's well, the reason why they blow off Christianity is because there are too many questions before they can ever really hear exactly what the Bible is saying. I was, I was over at my neighbor's house the other day and, and I was mowing his lawn. He is, He's 70 couple years old and he has bad knees. And so I was mowing the back part of his lawn. And, and after I got, had gotten finished, he knows I'm a pastor. And he said, well, well, what's the, what's the Sunday sermon going to be about? And, and I was telling him, I wasn't preaching, but I was telling him what the sermon was going to be about. And then his name is also Dan. Dan. Dan said, well, this is where you and I differ, he said. He said, you believe, uh, you believe in the Bible and I just can't. So we talked a little bit and then he went on with another question. He said, I believe that there is truth in many places. There's truth in the Bible. There's truth in textbooks. There's truth in what people say. So I don't believe that the Bible is the only place where there's truth. We talked a little bit more and then he came up with another question. He said, the problem with the Bible is that there's no way that you can know that what we have now is really true. And so he gave me a list of questions, basically, why he cannot believe Jesus of the Bible. And he's stuck on that orange part of the lollipop. He can't get past it to get to the Tootsie Roll Center. And and what I want to do this morning, I want to do two things. I want to look at the the hard orange candy-flavored part of Scripture. Uh, the questions of the Bible's validity. And, and it won't be satisfactory. I'll just brush over a couple questions. But I want, it to, I want you to start thinking. I want your minds to start thinking about, can, can I really believe this? And the second part is, is the Tootsie Roll part, uh, the sweet center of the Bible. And so those will be the two things that we'll look at. So we'll start with the hard orange flavored part of the Bible. So how about some of these questions that I asked in the beginning? Uh, that I started with, questions about the Bible. How about, how do we know that what we have in the Bible actually happens? How do you answer that question? Well, in the New Testament, and we'll just talk about the New Testament for now, there are eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who actually were there, who saw what had happened, what Jesus was teaching. So, what you have in the New Testament, for Paul's letters, and Paul has 12 or 13, there's 27 books in the New Testament, 12 or 13, even maybe 14, uh, can be attributed to the Apostle Paul. They were written 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were, were written 30 to 40 years after, uh, after Jesus' death. And so you have people who would have seen Jesus die on the cross, who would have heard what he was teaching, who would have seen miracles, who were still alive when these Gospels came out. 
They were eyewitnesses. For example, in our passage, there's a man named Cleopas. He's named specifically. And so you could ask Cleopas, did you really have a conversation? In the book of Mark, there's Simon of Cyrene in chapter 15 who's carrying the cross of Jesus. And Mark tells us, Simon of Cyrene, he names who he is, and he says... He's also the father of Rufus and Alexander. So in other words, if you have questions, go see Rufus or Alexander. I'll give you an example. 35 years from now, there may be somebody who says Super Bowl 2011. It was a great victory for the Pittsburgh Steelers over the Packers. Well, most of you will be around in 35 years and you can say, no, 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 no. I was there or I saw it. The Packers won. That's exactly what we have with the New Testament. That these witnesses, when, they, when these books were written, they could have said, no, that's not true. But the historical testimony is nobody disagreed. What you have is what was seen. Well, how, how, about, the, uh, how about the question, isn't the Bible uh, like a game of telephone? Information that, that you pass from one person to the next person. You start with a phrase, and by the time you get to the twelfth person, it's completely changed. Isn't the Bible like that? And that's really a question of translations. And, and what I mean by that is, it's not that the Bible has been translated, and then that translation gets translated, that translation gets translated. What you have is these original or early, early manuscripts. And so what translators do is they all are looking at the same earliest manuscripts and making their translations off the same manuscript. So in other words, the ESV, which I think is here, it's a word-for-word translation. But it sounds different from the NIV. That's because it's a different translation. The translation for the NIV is not taking the Greek to the English. But in the NIV, you're taking a sentence or a phrase and you're translating it. That's why the ESVs are harder to read than the NIV. But there are even translations that, from the same the early manuscripts that are taking paragraphs by paragraph. And they're the easiest to read. Now, you have to, sometimes they put in more than maybe you might want them to. But the reason there are different translations is not because they're all being translated over and over. It's just the intent of the translation. Okay, how about, how about uh, the different creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2? It's very clear that God is the creator, that he creates, he creates with his voice, and there's nothing there, and he creates out of that. Uh, both counts are, are very similar, or the same with that. But what about some of the, the events and how it happens? It seems like there's a little bit of a difference. But that's not unusual to the Bible. In, in Judges chapter 4, you have... The story of Deborah, and she's a judge, and she, I believe, is going up against the Philistines. And so chapter 4, you get the historical account of what took place in Judges 4. Chapter 5, you have a poem of Deborah's victory. Now, it's the same two events. They sound a little bit different, but one's poetic and one's historical. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they're saying the same thing. But chapter 1 seems to be a little bit more poetical in its structure. Chapter 2 seems to be more of a historical account, both proclaiming that God is the author of creation. How about slaves? It says in Ephesians, obey your slaves. So there you have it. The Bible says it's okay to have slaves. No, Paul is saying in that context, for somebody who's a slave during that day, the best thing you could do is to obey your master. But when he addresses slavery in the book of Philemon in the New Testament, what he says to slaves, if you can get your freedom, you need to get it. It's better to be free 
than to be a slave. Well, what about women? You know, doesn't the women demean, or doesn't the Bible demean women? Well, even in our passage in Luke chapter 24, who is it that sees the, the most important event of Jesus' life first? It's women. Now, what's interesting is the testimony of women in that day, in that society, you could not even use the testimony of women in court. It was thrown out. It didn't matter because it came from a woman. But Jesus comes, he comes along, and the most historical important event of his life, who does he providentially want to see? It's women. Christianity has changed the position of women for good. How about, why is the Bible about rules mostly? This is where, this is where my neighbor Dan was getting at. This was his last question. He said, this is my biggest problem with Christianity. It's all about rules. The Bible is a bunch of rules. And so what it does is it motivates people by fear. You have to be afraid of going to hell to do what God wants. That's why I don't like Christianity. And Dan's never seen what Christianity really is. He's never been able to taste the sweet part of the scriptures because he's stuck on the hard, orange, nasty part. The tough questions that are good questions, but he can't get past those questions. So let's talk about what is it? What is the sweet center of the Bible? Let me ask you this first. Do you have a song? Yeah, doesn't everybody sort of have a song? You know, you know, maybe when you're a kid, you know, you're 14, you, you've got a song. My song when I was in high school was the Top Gun Anthem. I love to listen to the Top Gun Anthem. Uh, some people get a song when they get married. You have a wedding song that you dance to. Do you know that now most baseball players, they have their own song when they come up to bat? So, so Prince Fielder, he, he has a song. One year it was called Semi-Truck or Semi-Truck. Every, every player has their song. Uh, do you have a song that, that, repre- that represents you, that sort of even invigorates you? The Bible has a song. Now, there is a song in the scripture. And I want to take you to that sweet song. And we're going to see it in Luke chapter 24. It's, it's in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus, he's been resurrected from the dead that very morning. And he meets up with two men who were, who were depressed, discouraged. They're walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem. The Christ has been crucified and they are upset. And Jesus is going to take them to a song. A song that you can hear every time you open the Bible. A song that's on every page of Scripture. A song that's the same song in the New Testament. And this is the same song song that's sung in the Old Testament. And this is the song. This is the song of Scripture. This is the sweet part. This is the center. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There are two ways to read through the Bible. One way is wrong and one way is right. The, the wrong way is through a moralistic lens. And what I mean by that is the Bible is about me and I have to live a certain way so that God will, will be pleased with me. So, so that's the moralistic, that's the wrong way. Uh, the right way is through a redemptive lens. The Bible is not about me, but it's about God. It's about God redeeming a world and redeeming a people. 
Uh, one wrong way to look at the scripture is to say that, that that scripture is basically instruction sprinkled with some stories, rules that tell us what to do, and then some examples to, to now be like Abraham who left his home and risked it for, for God. Uh, be like Moses who was a strong leader. Be like David and fight up against your your enemies. That's not the right way. Uh, but the, the right way is to see all of Scripture as one big story with instru- sprinkled with instructions. The wrong way says that I present my record before God and say, this is my record. This is my life that I have to give to you, God. I hope it's good enough. The right way is that Jesus comes and he gives his life. He lives the perfect life. He gives his life on the cross for you so that you can stand and you can stand with Jesus's record, not your record, but you can stand with Jesus's record given to you by faith. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It is the song of Scripture. Luke chapter 24. It's during the Passover festival. And the Passover festival is when the Israelites would celebrate leaving Egypt. It's in the book of, it's in the book of Exodus. Because on that night, the Spirit of God passed over every Israelite who had blood covered on his doorpost. And anybody who did not have blood covering his doorpost, their firstborn son, they were killed. So the Egyptians lost many sons that night. And so they left. Pharaoh said to the Israelites, get out. And so they left and they escaped Egypt. They escaped slavery. They're celebrating the Passover feast right here at the end of Jesus' life. He's been crucified. He's died on the cross. And these two men are upset. Why? Because their hope was not in redemption from sin. But their hope was in economic redemption and political redemption. They were enslaved to the Roman government. And so their hope was that Jesus would come along and free them from this economic and from this political slavery. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Before God and all the people, the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. So do you hear what they're saying? Jesus says, tell me what's going on. And so these two men who were discouraged, they say, well, Jesus was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed. That's good so far. Then they say he was sentenced to death. That's also good. He was crucified. Check with that one as well. Then in 22 and 24, they say, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. They went to the tomb, and he wasn't there. Check. Everything sounds good so far, right? And then they say, we had hoped in verse 21 that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, and, and you understand the irony here. 
Uh, you understand what the, the, their theology is right on. Jesus is powerful in word and deed. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And now He's gone. And they're upset about this. And Jesus is saying, that's the point. That's the Old Testament. That's everything. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And somehow they missed it. In verse 16 it says that they were kept from recognizing Him. Jesus removes the veil in verse 25. And He says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter His glory? And so He says... Everything you said is exactly what the prophets have said in the Old Testament. Exactly. Did not the Christ, me, have to suffer these things? And then here it is. Verse 27. I wish I, wish I could have been there. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So he begins at the beginning of the Old Testament. Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he begins to go throughout the whole Old Testament. And he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And this is the song of scripture that Jesus is about to open up. He's about to tell them and show them the heart, the the, the Tootsie Roll part, the very center, what all of scripture is about. The one song. And and I, I got much of this from Tim Keller. And it's been beautiful and encouraging to me. But this is. But this is what Tim Keller says. And this is what Jesus probably began to do. Jesus is, he is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the one who faced a test, just like Adam, but not in the garden. He faced that test in the desert. He did not fail it, but he passed so that he could represent us before God. Jesus, moving on in Genesis, is the true Abel. The innocent one who was slain, whose blood is crying out not for condemnation against his brother, but his blood cries out for justification and acquittal for those who trust in him. Jesus is the true and better ark of Noah, who protects us from the judgment of God, which is what the flood is. And those who were inside the ark, which is Christ, will be protected from the judgment of God. Jesus is the real and better Abraham, who left his home, who left his God and gave up everything so that the promise of God would be fulfilled for you and for me. Jesus is that one righteous person who God would not destroy for his people that Sodom and Gomorrah needed. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, whose father just didn't raise the dagger over him, but whose father brought the dagger down and killed his own son and did not spare him so that we might be spared. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who stands at the right hand of the throne of God, just like Joseph did in Egypt. And he stands there to forgive us and to intercede for us. Jesus is the true bronze snake who you see in numbers, the bronze snake that was up on the pole in the wilderness, that whoever looked up to the pole after they had bitten by the snake, they would be saved and they would live. Jesus is the one, but it's not a pole. It's a cross. 
you look up to Jesus on the cross, then you will be saved. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain so that his blood could cover us and our sins. Jesus is the true and better manna, the bread from heaven that feeds us and sustains us forever. Jesus is the true and better Moses who leads us out of slavery, not just from the Egyptians, but from our ultimate master, sin. Jesus is the rock of Moses who is struck with the rod of justice, just like Moses struck the rock. And he brings us water. Eternal water in the desert. Jesus is the real cleanliness which all of the laws are pointing to in the Old Testament. Every prophet, every priest, every king in the Old Testament is only but a mere shadow of the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who rules us perfectly and loves us and intercedes for us. Jesus is the true Jonah who went into the belly of the earth for three days and then came out to save us. He is the true Job who intercedes for his foolish friends. Jesus is the ultimate Joshua who leads us into the promised land. Jesus is the true David. David, the youngest and the weakest of his brothers. Jesus from a poor tribe, born to poor parents, born in a manger. David represented his people in risking his life fighting against Goliath. Jesus represents us in fighting against sin and going to the cross. The victory that David won was a victory for all of Israel. The victory that Jesus wins is a victory for all of his people. Jesus is the true and better Esther who risked losing the palace, who said, if I perish, I perish. But Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I'll perish for you. And you see, it's the song of the scriptures. It's the center. It's the beautiful center. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There was a woman named Karen who was living in Knoxville, and she had a son named Michael. He was three years old. And Michael was a little bit spoiled as the only child. And Karen became pregnant. And so she was a little nervous that Michael might get jealous of of his new sister-to-be. And so Karen would have Michael uh, come over to her and put his head on her pregnant stomach and sing a song for his sister to be born. And the song that he would sing is, You Are My Sunshine. My only sunshine, you make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know just how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. And he would sing that song every day to his unborn sister. Well, the time came for the little girl, the little baby girl to be born. And there were complications. And so they, she was born and they immediately took her from Knoxville to the NIC unit in Nashville, Tennessee. And after a day or so, they told Karen and her husband that it doesn't look good. That we don't think she's going to make it. Her heart just isn't strong enough. It was a crushing, of course, for for their family. And it was so hard for Michael because Michael wasn't allowed in the the NICU, NICU unit. And he wanted to go in, Mommy, I want to see my little sister. 
And so they finally convinced the nurses to let him go and see his sister. And so he went in and she was all hooked up to all kinds of things. And her, the monitor wasn't moving much. And Michael said to his mom, I, I want to sing for her. And so he began to sing the song. He said, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when sky You know how it goes. And her heart started to move. And they said, sing it again, Michael. Sing it again. And so he sang, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And he sang it again. And her heart started to move and move. And she was able to go home eventually. And you see, there's a song that's in the scriptures. That when you come to the scriptures and you see that the Bible isn't saying you've got to be good, you've got to try harder, you've got to do all that I want and then I will receive you and accept you. But when you see that the song of the scripture is Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And you look at yourself and you say, but I'm not worthy to be loved. But you don't know what I've done in my past. That I can't shake these sins But Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because it's not our record that we stand with before God, but it's Jesus' record. That's why He had to live the perfect life. And His perfection is given to us. And so when we stand before God, we stand in Jesus' perfect record. And we stand with our song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for being sweet to us. Lord, thank you for loving us and being kind to us. 